0: Serious internal problems. The area had been ravaged by World War II. During the Indochina War, it had been plowed under by French tanks and blown up by its own saboteurs. Now its road system, previously one of the most advanced in Southeast Asia, lay in ruins. Although most of Vietnam's raw materials were in the north, the French withdrawal had left industry in chaos. The North Vietnamese quickly discovered that it was easier to blow up trains than to make them run on time. Agriculture was also in ruins. Only a Russian-financed program of importing rice prevented a famine. Control of the Laos highlands, however, did give Hanoi some of the world's richest opium fields. This provided a ready and fast source of foreign currency. True to its revolutionary birth, the North began a campaign of social reform. To begin with, the population was sorted into economic classes according to a complicated set of rules, most of which hinged on the possession of property. For example, a farmer's piglet would be equated to quarts of rice, then added to his income in rice, minus the salary paid to his workers, the whole being first expressed in quarts of rice and then in percentages of revenue over investment. Class membership became almost a racial characteristic. Daughters of landowners would be lucky to marry downward into the more politically acceptable lower class, but they had to be married one year before being reclassified. This class structure reflected the communist repugnance for private ownership. It is estimated that 50,000 North Vietnamese were executed in the process of land reform. At least twice that many were sent to labor camps. In 1956, the peasants in the Vietnamese province of Nay An, Ho Chi Minh's birthplace, violently rebelled. The communists backed down. On August 17, 1956, Ho Chi Minh announced in a conciliatory way... Errors have been committed in the implementation of unity in the countryside. The party and the government have taken up seriously the subject of those lacks and errors and have determined a plan for their correction. Those who have been wrongly classified as landlords and rich peasants will be correctly reclassified. Those members of the party, the cadres, and the population who have been the subject of an erroneous judgment will be re-established in their rights and prerogatives, and their honorable character will be recognized. This was the North's campaign for the rectification of errors, which involved the release of many prisoners and concentration camp inmates. But northern reform aimed at more than property. Lenin had once defined communism as collective rule plus electrification. But electric power and poor communications became the Achilles' heel of the north. Its cities were typically in a state of brownout, and the people were exhorted not to use big light bulbs. Industry needed to be rebuilt. A more political problem emerged as well. Some party members had been fighting for independence for years. Now they wished to reap the benefits of power through embezzlement, for example. Non-communists who had fought the French also wanted a reward. The mountain tribes demanded control of their native areas. This called for a political solution. At 7 a.m. on May 8, 1960, sirens blared and 5.6 million North Vietnamese began to cast ballots for the first time since January 1946. They cast ballots on leadership and on a constitution. 99.85% of eligible voters reportedly voted for members of the Vietnamese Workers' Party. Ho Chi Minh reportedly received a 99.91% share of the vote. The new constitution granted autonomous zones to the mountain tribes. It also gave structure to the new communist order. Life in North Vietnam became politicized. The citizens of Hanoi woke to patriotic music. They bicycled to work under banners extolling self-sacrifice. Villagers on the way to market were stopped at roadblocks and tested for literacy. Those who failed either took reading lessons on the spot or were barred from the market. Critics claimed that culture and education meant one thing, indoctrination. This was particularly true in the army. In his book, People's War, People's Army, General Jopp proclaimed, The People's Army is the instrument of the party and of the revolutionary state for the accomplishment in armed form of the tasks of the revolution. Profound awareness of the aims of the party Boundless loyalty to the cause of the nation and the working class and a spirit of unreserved sacrifice are fundamental questions for the army and questions of principle. Therefore, the political work in its ranks is of the first importance. It is the soul of the army. Some northern intellectuals shrank away from the new order. Again, Ho moderated by introducing what was known as the policy of 100 flowers. This policy was based on two lines of poetry attributed to the communist Chinese leader Mao Zedong. Let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools contend. In theory, the policy encouraged relatively free speech. But this short period of freedom backlashed on those intellectuals who embraced it. Some were purged. Many were forced to engage in public self-criticism, during which they admitted to such sins as reading French newspapers. Other intellectuals simply disappeared. Meanwhile... North Vietnam faced international problems as well. Both the Soviet Union and China had been providing massive aid, largely because North Vietnam represented a communist wedge into the mainland of Southeast Asia. It was a jumping-off point into South Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. Russia and China competed with each other for the plum that was North Vietnam. Later, as Moscow and Peking came into more direct conflict, each would want the North Vietnamese communists to align with their country. This was a pitfall that Ho Chi Minh would assiduously avoid. W. Averill Harriman, Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, observed, It looks as if Ho Chi Minh is trying to play both ends against the middle. He wants to get Russian support. The Viet Minh do not wish to have the Chinese overrun them. You might say their hearts are in Moscow, but their stomachs are in China. As the Sino-Soviet split emerged, the majority of the North Vietnamese leadership favored Moscow. Many feared that alignment with China would result in absorption by China. Moreover, Russia was better able to supply North Vietnam's non-agricultural needs but there were those who favored the Chinese. The head of the political directorate, for example, leaned toward Peking. He became the minister of farms. From the south, Ziem made much of the northern communist threat. However, it has been suggested that Ho Chi Minh was not primarily interested in invading South Vietnam. It would mean confronting America. He knew too well what American bombing had done to North Korean factories, dams, railroads, and towns. He was not eager to reduce his own land to smoking rubble. Nor did he wish to risk losing North Vietnam to non-communists. Ho Chi Minh seemed primarily concerned with strengthening his grip upon a communist North Vietnam. In South Vietnam, Ngo Dinh Diem was still trying to consolidate his own regime. South Vietnam had been crippled by colonialism and war. Although it had been one of the world's greatest rice exporters, it now relied upon food imports purchased with American dollars. A huge trade deficit went from bad to worse, at times equaling two-thirds of the currency in circulation. When the French army withdrew in 1956, French money went with them. An influx of Americans filled the void. Although this cushioned the economy, it also led South Vietnam further down the road of dependency upon America. American aid rebuilt highways, railroads, and canals, and brought a slight increase in agriculture. But mostly, American aid made South Vietnamese officials rich. Saigon experienced an artificially high standard of living, but the villages, which contained more than 90% of the people, received little benefit. The charge of siphoning funds wrapped itself around Ziem and his family. By 1957, rumors of corruption had reached such proportions that Nude, Ziem's brother took out advertisements in Saigon newspapers to deny them. Of course, this only fueled the rumors, as did the constant rise in government gold reserves. By December 1960, Saigon had a currency hoard of $216.4 million. Many believed these millions should be spent on schools and hospitals. Although Ziem accepted American money, he did not accept American advice. Nor did he consult with American officials. Reports to the United States were misleading and contained faulty statistics. For example, visiting officials were...